about how much I appreciate this music that's been uh, provided for these services. This quartet is just really great. And, and what Emmett can't do on the piano, just nobody ought to do. That's <laughs> <laughs> we were over at his house last night and got to hear some of the, uh, the recordings, too, that the quartet has made, and uh, they're, they're rich. And the girls' trio a while ago, that was wonderful. We really appreciate this good music and this fellowship and the messages and the, just all that you stand for and all that you're doing. We were thank, thankful to the Lord for making it possible for us to visit here for a few days. And we trust that it may be His will for us to get together again one of these days. We've enjoyed it. This is the, uh, the last uh, message, at least on this trip. We're going to try to speak on the subject miracles and modern science. Uh, several people have asked me about uh, some of the other messages and where, where they can read it and all, and the, the, the one last hour on the, uh, on the Trinity and those things, is uh, most of this is in one of the chapters in the book Studies in the Bible and Science. There's a chapter on Christ and creation there. It's a red-covered book. Uh, all that uh, people have been asking about the 200 acres in heaven. I, I must have had a dozen people asking about that. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's in the book book uh, Biblical Cosmology. If you, if you want to look at that, and also the business about the gap theory and the day age theory and so forth is in that book and the population equation. Now. Uh, I might mention this, this other book we have back there. It's not mine, although one chapter I, I, I've written in it called Why Not Creation. This is kind of an expensive book, but I think it's, it's very uh, valuable. If, if you're interested, for example, in, in the true facts and uh, proper understanding of the so-called fossil men, Pithecanthropus and Neanderthal and those, I haven't discussed that very much in these lectures, but there is an excellent chapter on that subject in that book. Also, there's several chapters on the radioactive dating. Uh, the, every chapter in, in the book is written by a different specialist in our Creation Research Society and in the different fields of science. And I think it's highly useful as a reference book in that uh, respect. And then, of course, the biology textbook. Uh, we're hopeful that uh, you'll do what you can to encourage Christian schools in Tennessee and even more the public schools to uh, consider adopting that as, their, as a textbook or at least as a supplementary book. Well, enough on that. The, the subject of miracles, of course, is one that is much disputed. seems to me like there, there are probably two false ideas, kind of at the two extremes on the subject of miracles today, very prevalent ideas. One is the attitude of what I would call uh, excessive credulity. People, it seems like more, more today than in, a, in my lifetime, they're looking for something supernatural and, and unusual. We have all kinds of people flocking after astrology today, of all things, and all sorts of occult practices that people, uh, you get into a closed room and you go through certain techniques and incantations and the spirits of your dead ancestors show up and tell you about things. And people are going after that kind of thing, the, the miraculous, the supernatural. And of course, there are a lot of folks who, I remember... There's a radio preacher not too far from where we used to live that used to say if you would send in a certain contribution, he'd send you a, a handkerchief, which he had blessed, and it would heal you of your, of your sicknesses. And he had a lot of testimonies, too, about, about this. I don't know. They, 
And then, of course, there are a lot of folks who think that by going through certain procedures, they'll suddenly acquire the ability to, to, to speak in a language which they never studied before. And oftentimes, a language which nobody ever studied before. <laughs> Well, this kind of an attitude of looking for the, the spectacular, the supernatural, the, the miraculous, I think is unbiblical. The Lord Jesus said it critically, he said to certain people, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. And he says, I'm not going to show you any signs and wonders. I've given you the sign of the prophet Jonah. The Son of Man is going to be three days and three nights, the heart of the earth. But he did say, of course, in the, in the parable that even though uh, somebody came back from the dead, why, they still wouldn't believe if they didn't believe the word of God. Moses and the prophet, let them hear them, he said. And so the Lord isn't in the business of just providing mighty signs and wonders for us today. But on the other hand, there is the other attitude, which perhaps is even worse, and that is that miracles are impossible. And this is the attitude of the modern scientific establishment. They say that it's just simply impossible to have a miracle. We can explain everything by natural laws. This has been the predominant attitude in science and in the educational world since at least the time of David Hume a couple hundred years ago, and he sort of took the position that if, if someone claimed a miracle, they'd seen a miracle, something that was supernatural, you couldn't accept that testimony because it's always possible to explain it on some other grounds, and there are about three different ways that you can explain a miracle in a natural way. One is to say that the, the witnesses who reported it just were not reliable witnesses. That they just weren't, they weren't sure of what they saw. They mistook what they observed. Or they stretched, the, stretched their imagination. And, of course, this is a legitimate uh, question to be raised because people uh, do let their imaginations run away sometimes. And especially under conditions of unusual circumstances, they tend to, to think they see what maybe they really didn't see. And even if it isn't a supernatural occurrence, if you have three or four different witnesses of a certain event, why, everyone will report it somewhat differently. And so we always have a little question about the reliability of, of a second or third-hand testimony of, of some supernatural event. And just maybe, we just can't depend on their, on their witness. Another way that you could explain away a miracle is, and this is quite common, is to say that we just don't really understand enough about that particular event or process but if we did understand all about it, we could explain it. If we just could study it more, if we had more measurements and we could more carefully evaluate and observe and record what happened, we would be able to explain it on a natural basis. And, of course, there's a lot to this, too. A lot of what we call a commonplace today would have been considered miraculous a hundred years ago. Why, here, I can, I can fly to San Diego in about four hours. And a hundred years ago, we had to call that a miracle. But now we simply call it airplane. And you can see in your living room something happening on the other side of the world. And that would sound like a miracle, but now we know it's television. And so on. A lot of these so-called miracles of modern technology are really natural processes, which we have learned to understand through the application of the scientific method, and the idea would be, by those who reject miracles, that if we understood any of these things com uh, completely enough, we could explain them on a scientific basis. And then there's still another recourse, and that is to, uh, to recognize that all processes are basically statistical processes. 
and that every phenomenon, every process, everything that happens, uh, just happens in a certain way on the average, but it can vary around that average quite widely. So, uh, for example, we, we say that the, that the river, the Cumberland River or whatever it is, flows at a certain average rate, so many cubic feet per second. I don't know what the flow is, say 100 cubic feet per second on the average. But it may be very rarely in a great period of flood that that river may have a hundred times what its normal flow is. It might have 10,000 cubic feet per second in it. Or it may have none in a very long period of drought. So it, it varies quite widely about the average, and the same is true about all processes. Even, even solid hard matter is basically statistical. It's, it's mostly empty space, just tremendous energy in motion. They tell us that, uh, for example, you can pick up a, a rock and uh, throw it through the window, and if all the atoms happen to line up in the glass and in the rock just right, it would just pass right through and uh, wouldn't, wouldn't uh, touch each other. Statistically, this could happen. It wouldn't be very likely, but it, it has a certain possibility of happening. Or you might just sit right through your bench there <laughs> if you're all, all the atoms lined up just right. Statistically, theoretically, this could happen so that when you do see something very unusual, miraculous, uh, apparently happening, it may be just this is just a very rare statistical variation of the particular process. And so by one or the other means, it seems like it's always possible to explain away a miracle on one of these three bases. And the modern scientists, by and large, would say that there isn't any such thing as a miracle. On the other hand, the Bible does talk about miracles. It, it says, for example, in, in the Gospel of John, in fact, the whole Gospel of John is structured around seven great signs or miracles that the Lord Jesus performed. He turned the water into wine. He healed the cripple. He multiplied the loaves and the fishes. He walked on the water. And he raised Lazarus from the dead and so on. And, and then at the end of that uh, recount of these seven great signs, it says this, Truly, many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And so these, at least these seven great miracles that are recorded in the Gospel of John were given specifically to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. Not only, not only the Lord, but the apostles too, you remember. It says, for example, in the second chapter of Hebrews, Something like this. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and then was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. And so they also performed miracles. And you note in both of these references, as well as in many others that we could give, that there always, in the biblical miracles, always seem to be two factors present. One is that they were not just trivial things. They were not just performed for the, for the marvel of it or the wonder of it. They always had a purpose. And then besides that, they had a second purpose, and that was to, to vindicate and to validate the presence of the Lord, either directly in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ or through the Holy Spirit in the case of the apostles, to, to validate the word of God and his, or his prophet by the miraculous. And they were not just trivial or, or, or useless or pointless occurrences. But nevertheless, they were real miracles according to the Bible. Now, what about this? How do, how do we recognize then what a miracle is? How do, how do we 
You see, in order to have real miracles, apparently they'd have to be of some nature so as to not be not be capable of being explained by one of these several different methods that men use to explain them away. If it's some kind of a thing that we can just work up by some technique or going through certain incantations, by that very fact, if, if we can bring it within the domain of, it, of empirical practice, if you do certain things and you perform this miracle, that, that very fact means it's not a miracle. It's within the domain of the scientific method of repeatability, of experimental law. And I think a lot of these so-called miracles today are basically just uh, physiological processes that can be controlled and determined. We don't know all about them yet, but by sufficient study we could. And there, there, There's nothing really uh, special about them. They're, they're definitely uh, within the domain of the ordinary processes of nature. Now, well, there is another possibility which we'll get to in a moment, too. But, but what about the real biblical miracles? Do they still occur today? Is it possible to have miracles such as recorded in the Scriptures? And how would we recognize them if we saw them? How would we test them? What is the... How do we define miracles? Well, in terms of what we've been discussing concerning the nature of natural laws and processes, I think we can get at a definition, all right. We would try to define a miracle in terms of what we understand about nature, because we have to, in order to have a miracle, it has to be something that can't be explained that way. So we have to, first of all, define what we mean by natural laws and processes and how, what their scope is, what their character may be. And we've seen that there are two basic laws, and that within the framework of the two basic laws, we have all these innumerable different processes that take place. And these processes are basically statistical processes. They work in an average way, but they can be changed, and they vary about the average, and so on. Well, with this in mind, it seems like we can probably define two kinds of miracles. Uh, one would be a miracle which operates within the framework of the two basic laws, but represents a very extreme variation about the average of the particular process. I would call that a, a miracle of providence, or maybe a grade B miracle. But then also there would be the type of miracle which would completely set aside the basic laws, would operate over and beyond the, basic, the two basic laws of science, and this would require the direct intervention of creative power, and so I'd call this a miracle of creation, or a grade A miracle. Now the interesting thing is that the Bible talks about both of these kinds of miracles, and it calls both of them miracles. Let's consider the, the great B miracle first. This is, the, this is the miracle which would operate within the framework of the two laws of thermodynamics, but uh, would, the, the particular process would be controlled in a very unusual way, statistically varying widely from the average. Now, for those of me, if there is anyone who wasn't here, I've been talking about these laws of thermodynamics for three days, so you ought to be familiar with them by now, but just in case there's somebody who wasn't here... The two laws of thermodynamics are the law of conservation of energy and the law of decay of energy. And we recognize that energy is everything, even matter being a form of energy, so that the first law says that energy is not being created or destroyed, but rather is being conserved. And so the first law says that nothing is now being created, neither matter nor energy in the ultimate sense is being created now. So consequently, if we have a creation of matter take place or of energy out of nothing, then this would be a miracle. It would go against the first law of science. The second law says that everything is decaying, becoming disordered, and, and there's a tendency always from order to disorder. 
So therefore, if we have a sudden increase of order out of chaos or out of disorder without the application of, uh, of a definite source of order or information or negative entropy from outside into the system, then this would also call, require a miraculous intervention of creative power or ordering power from the Creator. And so this also would be a miracle. But now, if we don't set aside either of the two laws, the conservation continues and decay continues, but the particular process deviates widely from the average, if a particular stream, which normally has only one cubic foot per second flowing in it, all of a sudden one day has a thousand cubic feet per second flowing in it, it's still the basic laws of energy and so on are, are, are applicable, but it's a very unusual sort of a flood or a rainstorm, and we might say that this is a, a, is a grade B miracle. Now, the Bible talks about that kind of miracle. For example, it says in James 5, Elijah was a man of like passions as we are, and he prayed that it might not rain. And it didn't rain for the space of three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the heavens gave forth their rain. Well, a drought is not supernatural. They occur all the time. And we can even plot the curves about the frequency of droughts of different magnitudes and so on for different regions. We do this in hydrology, which is my field, quite commonly. But a three-and-a-half-year drought, even in an arid country like Israel, is a pretty unusual thing. And the Bible says that it occurred in answer to prayer, so we'd have to say it was, a, it was a miracle. It didn't set aside the basic laws, but it nevertheless was an extremely unusual variation of the particular process. Another example would be one night Paul and Silas in prison in, in Philippi sang and prayed, gave praise to God, and all of a sudden there was a great earthquake, and the chains were loosed and the doors opened and so on. It was an, a miracle, but there's nothing miraculous about an earthquake. This happens quite commonly. You have earthquakes all over the world all the time. Nothing supernatural about an earthquake. But statistically, for it to occur just under those circumstances in that time, in that place, it was very unusual, and so we'd say it was an answer to prayer. God intervened and caused that normal natural process to occur unusually right at that time and place. And many other things like this. You think about the in the days of uh, Sennacherib and Hezekiah, the death angel came, and all of a sudden one night there were, what was it, 160,000, whatever the number was, that were dead corpses next morning. I'm not sure what other kind of corpse. But anyway... anyway. Well, there's nothing supernatural about death. This is perfectly in accordance with the law of decay, the second law of thermodynamics. There's nothing supernatural about that. But for that many people in that one place at that one time, it was pretty unusual. It was a very odd statistical variation of the, of the death principle for those people. Well, there are many other. In fact, most of the biblical miracles are like this. And I would say that that kind of a miracle occurs today. Pretty commonly. As a matter of fact, every believing Christian knows that God answers prayer. And every one of us could give testimony of how we have prayed, and, and it looked like the situation was just hopeless, and God answered, and he intervened in some way in the natural processes, and he brought circumstances to bear, and probabilities began to operate, and he worked things together in such a way that the prayer was answered, often in very unusual and unlikely uh, manners. Uh, God answers prayer. And he, he, but he doesn't usually do it by creating something. This, this, uh, but he, he does it by what I would call grade B miracles, like some of these that we're talking about. But they're nevertheless real answers to prayer, real, real miracles. 
and as, as to how he does this, how he manages to control these processes, well, of course, God, he could just speak and do it, but it seems like the Bible indicates that he has, he has a, a, a secondary means of controlling natural processes, and, and this particular agency is called angels. Now, think about that a moment. I've never seen an angel, except my wife, but, uh, but uh, I believe they exist. The Bible talks about angels. In fact, it says there's an innumerable company of angels. And furthermore, it says they excel in strength, and they go forth to do the commandments of the Lord. And not only that, but it says that they have been created as ministering spirits to minister for them who are to be the heirs of salvation. In other words, God created this mighty host of angels, uh, n not with, uh, with uh, a definite purpose for them, which then that was later set aside and he, and he tried man instead, as, as some have thought, but rather man was his purpose all along, and the angels were created for the purpose of ministering to man. And, and so therefore there's this mighty host of angels available for God to dispatch here and yonder, around the universe, around the world, whenever he wants to, in order to accomplish some purpose of his. And these angels are mighty in strength, and they're mighty in wisdom, and I think that they probably understand the way natural processes operate pretty well, and they are able to control them. And you get hints of this, of course, in the Bible. You read how God sent an angel to Daniel, and, well, on, on various occasions, one time he sent an angel down into the lion's den to, to keep the lion's mouth shut. So he wouldn't eat him. And he sent uh, an angel to the prison where Peter was, and the angel opened the gate of the prison and let him out, and so on. He sent the angel to bring down fire and brimstone. I think this was probably a volcanic eruption at Sodom and Gomorrah. You read in Revelation how the angels control the winds and the processes in the sun and various other things there. It seems like they have something something to do with these normal natural processes and I don't know whether God has an angel for all of these different things or not but whether he has a whole group of, of them for each particular type of process I, I don't know all that but at any rate when the occasion requires they seem to be able to, to step in and intervene and, and handle things like, uh, like they need to be handled in response to God's command in response to the prayers of his people now let me just tell you an experience, and all of us could give experiences and testimonies about this, I guess. But I want to tell you about my, my daughter, my oldest daughter. She's always been kind of an adventurous type of girl, and she's now on the mission field. Matter of fact, they're in the jungles of New Guinea, she and her husband, with the Wycliffe Bible translators, and they've gone back in. In fact, it's a two-day canoe trip from the nearest little makeshift airstrip. It's way back. And they're back there working with these people that never had a missionary, never had a gospel testimony. They're trying to learn the language, put it in writing so they can translate the scriptures and give them God's word. Well, it doesn't seem to bother them. I never do a thing like that. But, but uh, at least I don't think so, unless the Lord really led me. But, uh, <laughs> but ever since she was just a small girl, she knew that's what she was going to do. She was just always going to be a missionary to a primitive tribe somewhere. And there she is, and she doesn't. And she's had, they've risked their lives any number of times. Often came very close to losing their lives, but the Lord's kept them. And uh, well, it's just I, I just mentioned that to, to illustrate the kind of a girl she is. But when she was just a, a youngster, just I think about six years old, she was adventurous then too. And uh, her older brother, the one I mentioned the other night, who's now a pastor, 
he had a new bicycle, and uh, brand new, and it was his, and uh, he wasn't riding it though right at the moment, and she decided she was going to ride that bicycle. And she didn't know anything about riding a bicycle. She'd never been on one, didn't know anything about it, but she nevertheless was going to ride it, and so she got on it, and sure enough, she was riding the bicycle. Only then she didn't know how to stop it. <laughs> and she went out of the driveway into the street, and, they, and they, uh, the lady driving the car, it was a kind of a busy street, and the woman was coming down there pretty fast, and she saw her coming out of the driveway, and uh, she, she got excited, and she jammed on the brake, only it turned out to be the accelerator, and she, she demolished the bicycle. It was just completely torn to pieces. And I, I heard the, the brakes, and I saw what was happening. I ran out to pick up my daughter. I thought she'd probably be dead. But she wasn't hurt. And she told us later how she went out into the street. She saw the car, and she didn't know what to do. She couldn't stop the bike, and she didn't know. And she said she just felt herself sort of picked up and laid down on the hood of the car and then over into the grass. Well, I don't know, but <laughs> you can't help but think in, in a thing like that. Like it says in Psalm 90, 91, you know, He shall give His angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear Him and delivers them. Well, I don't know, but uh, I could be. Let me tell you another. <laughs> Let me tell you another experience that I, that I heard about. I heard the... Maybe some of you have known Tommy Smoke. He wasn't from too far from here. He's now a, a missionary pilot with, uh, with Wycliffe, uh, flying in the jungles and so on. But he, he was there at BPI when I was on the faculty there at Virginia Tech. And he was saved there through the witness of the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He became a Christian. And then he, uh, he had to go into the service because he had a commission. It was a military school then, and he had a commission. And he, he was in the Air Force. And he was in training over Little Rock, Arkansas. This was this had been maybe 15 years ago, and possibly you might remember this. It was in the headlines all over the country at the time. He was flying with his crew over Little Rock one morning, and as I recall, his testimony was something like 30,000 feet up in the air. And all of a sudden, the plane just exploded. It never did know exactly what or how, but it just disintegrated, and everyone else in the crew was killed except except Tommy. And he was burned pretty badly in the explosion. But I later heard him give this testimony, and it took about an hour, so I won't, I'll just be able to cover the, the, the high point. He had all sorts of miraculous things happen to preserve his life in the details of how he happened to put on a heavy coat that morning. Normally he wouldn't, and all kinds of things. Anyway, he, he said he came to. He was unconscious for a while after the explosion. He came to, and he was falling, and he was still jammed in his, in his uh, seat. It had, he hadn't been ejected like he was supposed to have. He was trapped in it and he couldn't get out. He tried. He, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't release. And so he finally just gave up and was praying and then all of a sudden the seat left him. just took off. And so he thanked the Lord. That was great. And, uh, and then he pulled the parachute to open his parachute. Only it was jammed and it wouldn't open. And so uh, he tried and he couldn't get it open. And finally he just had to give up. He uh, prayed again and uh, all of a sudden, the parachute opens. Just opened. And so now he's really thanking the Lord for delivering him, and he looked up, and the parachute was in shreds. And it wasn't breaking his fall at all. Well, <laughs> of course, he was ready to meet the Lord. He was a Christian by then, but he, <laughs> he wasn't ready. <laughs> <laughs> I 
guess he would, he would rather, of course, it had been some time later than that, but he was he was ready if he had to go, and he was, but he thought about his mother and his wife and his past life and everything, and and he remembered in his training in the Air Force that they told him that if he ever had to, to have a hard fall, to be relaxed and flexible and just sort of turn a little somersault, and, that was, and so he was going to do the best he could. He said he was going to do that when he hit. And he was coming down, and as he began to approach the ground, a woman on the ground who was a, a Christian, she saw him falling, and she began to pray also that the Lord would do something. And uh, so he fell on her driveway, and it was a concrete driveway, and he fell down on the concrete and turned his little somersault, and got up, wasn't hurt. <laughs> you don't believe that? <laughs> well, what, what, ha- what had happened, you see... Uh, on the side of the driveway, there were two great tall trees, and the, the ropes in the parachute, the, the string and so forth, and the tattered silk, it was just long enough to tangle in the tops of these trees, and gradually stretch the ropes just enough to let him down to the ground, just the right deceleration. Well, there's nothing supernatural about that. It was, it was a grade B miracle. But more the statistics, they kind of took a beating on that one. <laughs> But, you know, I, I sort of think, I know that the, the question of predestination and all this might, may come in here too, but uh, from our point of view at least, I think that there's a lot more that we would see in terms of God's response to prayer if we would pray more. And, and he can do wonderful things, and he has an innumerable company of angels available just to, and the more, I, I bet a lot of them are just sitting around loafing waiting for somebody to ask God to... <laughs> Let me, let me just give one word of, of caution here, though. We don't want to be too overly impressed by these things because, after all, there's a great company of evil angels, too. And they know a lot about natural processes also. And they can do some interesting things, too. And the Bible does talk about lying wonders. And so let's don't be overly impressed by an unusual situation or occurrence unless it validates the Word of God. Uh, you know, it says in Isaiah 8, doesn't it, talking about those who were tending to go after astrologers and magicians and sorcerers and so on, and it says, you better go back to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. Uh, so we, we do want to be a little bit careful about this matter of miracles. But nevertheless, God can marvelously answer prayer if we simply ask him. You ask not, you, you receive not because you don't ask, he says. Well, as far as grade A miracles are concerned, though, miracles of creation, setting aside the basic laws of science, the two laws of thermodynamics, well, normally this I don't think is going to happen too often today, if, it, if at all, because God established these laws. He created them. He finished his work of creating, and he's, just, he's placed the curse on the world until he comes to remove it. And, of course, if it were not, if it were not for the basic laws of nature that God has established, why... Science would be completely impossible. Technology would be impossible. We'd never be able to depend on anything in, in, in nature if, if it weren't for the uniformity of natural law. At the end of the Great Flood, of course, the Lord did say, as long as the earth remains, 
summer and winter and cold and heat and day and night, springtime and harvest are not going to cease. And in effect, he was saying that the rotation of the earth on its axis and the revolution of the earth about its sun were going to be constant from then on, and these control practically all other processes. So essentially, processes are going to be about the same from now on, with variation about the average, and, and the basic laws are not going to be changed. Unless, it, of course, it's possible. God is the creator, and if it suits his purpose and there's reason for it, he can intervene even in these basic laws and great creative miracles. And, of course, that's exactly what they were in the Gospel of John. If you check all these great seven great signs that the Lord Jesus performed, every one of them was a great A miracle. He turned the water into wine. This, the simple molecular structure of water, H2O, all of a sudden instantaneously elevated into the much more complex structure of wine. He, this cripple at the pool of Bethesda who had been hopelessly imp impotent from the time he was born, he was just completely shriveled up. All of a sudden he was perfectly sound and normal. He was just a, a new order and probably new flesh was created. The uh, few loaves and fishes were all of a sudden turned into thousands of pounds of bread and meat to feed the 5,000. This was a miracle of creation. The man's son who was about to die all of a sudden was perfectly whole and well. Uh, the Lord created some kind of anti-gravitational energy offsetting the force of gravity so he could walk on the water. He took Lazarus out of the grave where he had been corrupted there in the, in the tomb for four days. Turned the blind man's sightless eyes into perfect eyes at one instant. All of these were miracles of creation. And no wonder, therefore, the, the writer John says that these signs did Jesus that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. I think you'll find that many other of the miracles in the Bible are like this, too. They, for God's own purpose, and I think you can evaluate every one of the miracles this way in the Bible. I, I believe every one of them occurred just like the Bible describes. I think that the earth stopped rotating in the long day of Joshua and all the rest, because in every case there's adequate evidence that it happened and there was adequate reason for God to intervene to make it happen. And I think we can rely completely on the validity of every one of the biblical miracles. Of course, the greatest of all miracles of creation was the creation itself, when God created out of nothing all of the tremendous order and majesty and beauty and complexity of the whole universe by supernatural creative process. And for the evolutionists to presume to say that nature, which is non-creative and is disintegrating, by these processes could create all this order and material and energy in the whole universe. Well, they have to have a great A miracle at every step of the way to do it, because this requires miracles of creation. So the evolutionist simply, in order to believe that, he has to believe in magic. He has to be superstitious. It's not uh, science at all. It's just uh, absurd to think that a non-creative process could create the whole universe. Well, the miracle of creation was a great A miracle, but normally miracles like this don't occur today. God's universe works well, and his laws function properly, and he doesn't need to intervene in them. Uh, now, with one exception, and this is, a, of course, a glorious exception, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and all things become new, and this is a great A miracle. Here's a, here's a, a person, a man or a woman, or a young person whose life is just purposeless and empty and chaotic. It's running down. It's disorderly. Like Paul says, I find a law in my members. 
when I would do good, evil is present with me, and I find a law in my body warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin in my members, and there's nothing I can do about it, and the, the whole life is just running down towards chaos, and all of a sudden, it's orderly and has a purpose and it makes sense and there's a goal and he has power. Well, there's no accounting for this apart from creative, miraculous power. This is a grade A miracle, a miracle of creation in every sense of the word. And it testifies to the presence of God, just like the miracles of the Lord Jesus testified to the presence of the Son of God. This miracle testifies to the presence of the Spirit of God, who works this miracle of regeneration, transforms us, transforms our lives, and sets us toward God, whereas before we were away from God. Well, this miracle does happen today. It happened in your life. It's happened in my life. And we see it happening in others' lives as we faithfully transmit the message of the glorious, life-saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to them. So we do serve a, a God of might and miracle. And his power is just as great today as it ever was. And one of these days soon, of course, we're going to see that great miracle of recreation and new creation when the heavens and the earth which I create, says the Lord, will remain before me and never end. Well, it's certainly been good to be with you for these three days. I've enjoyed this fellowship and I hope that we'll meet again. Well, the Lord bless you. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they 
To admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.